I appreciate uh, the song with Gary and Ms. Heavy. It's a blessing, and uh, so glad that you've chosen to be in the Lord's house uh, here this morning. We're going to take our Bibles and turn to Nehemiah in chapter number 4 uh, here this morning. Nehemiah and chapter number 4. Nehemiah uh, is one of my um, favorite books, and uh, not for the reason you might think. Uh, we, uh, I actually preached through the book Oh, some years ago, five or six years ago, when I was pastoring in Kaufman. And of course, I think a lot of people are very familiar with the first six chapters of the book of Nehemiah about building the wall and all that Nehemiah did. But a lot of people don't realize the back six chapters of the book deal with Nehemiah rebuilding a city, rebuilding people. Uh, so he gets a lot of credit for rebuilding the walls. But I think the greater work that Nehemiah did was rebuilding a community and uh, boy, there's some wonderful things in the book of Nehemiah, definitely worth studying and reading, uh, and it's just a fantastic book. But we're going to look at some of the first part of the book here this morning. We're still dealing with this idea of faith. So we haven't uh, quite left that idea yet. We're still going to have uh, several sermons, probably through most of the end of the year here, dealing with this idea of faith. And so Nehemiah in chapter number four, if you found your place there and you're able to, let's stand together uh, to honor the reading of God's word. Nehemiah in chapter number four, and we'll start reading again in verse number 16. Now again, just to give maybe a little bit of context, I'll try to develop this a little bit more later on in the sermon. Uh, but at this point in the book of Nehemiah, you have uh, Nehemiah who has got commission. Uh, from the king of Persia to go back and rebuild the city walls and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And he now has returned. He has inspected the walls. He has divided the people in chapter 3 and got them encouraged and excited about work. And now they have started building. In chapter 3, they've started the great work of rebuilding the wall. And just like as is in the case in any great work you try to do for the Lord... It always invites opposition. So if you ever try to do something for God, don't expect it to be a smooth road. There'll always be something Amen. that will say, no, I don't think you should be doing that. And that's exactly what starts happening here in chapter 4. So we'll start picking up the reading there in verse number 16 of Nehemiah in chapter number 4. It says this, It came to pass from that time forth that the half of my servants wrought in the work, and the other half of them held both the spears, the shields, and the bows, and the habergens, and the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. They which builded on the wall, and they that bear burdens with those that laid it, every one with one of his hands wrought in the work, and with the other hand held a weapon. For the builders... Every one had his sword girded by his side, and so builded. And he that sounded the trumpet was by me. Verse number 19 says this, And I said unto the nobles, and to the rulers, and to the rest of the people, The work is great and large, and we are separated upon the wall, one far from another. In what place, therefore, ye hear the sound of the trumpet, resort ye thither unto us, our God shall fight for us. What a key phrase for what we're going to be talking about this morning when he says here, God's got the battle, right? God's got the victory. It's all up to the Lord. So verse number 21, he says this, So we labored in the work, and half of them held the spears from the rising of the morning till the stars appeared. Likewise, 
At the same time said I unto the people, Let every one with his servant lodge within Jerusalem, that in the night they may be a guard to us and labor on the day. So neither I, nor my brethren, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard which followed me, none of us put off our clothes, saving that every one put them off for washing. So we're going to talk about here this morning, maybe a little bit of a different title, uh, but here it is nonetheless, the non-fatalist take on faith. And I know that just blessed your heart right there, uh, but don't worry, we'll make sense of it as we go through this, the non-fatalist take on faith. So may God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated and thank you for standing uh, in honor of the scriptures here this morning. If you're unfamiliar with what fatalism is or being a fatalist, now again, please, okay, I know how this works. Somebody says, all right, we're going to give you a definition. Everyone goes, click, right? Your brains begin to wander off. So don't do that, okay? Let's, let's get this right at the front and engage a little bit, okay? Uh, fatalism. If you've never heard of what fatalism is, fatalism in common tongue is this, Sarah, Sarah, what will be, will be. It doesn't matter what I do, whatever's going to happen, it's just fate. And it doesn't matter if I do this or that, in the end, it'll always end this way. Okay? Fatalism, the belief that all events are predetermined and therefore inevitable. Uh, when I spent time in Africa, fatalism was a really big part of their culture. Like, really big, more than I realized. So, you would have people that would literally be on the side of the street that would just walk out into the middle of the street with cars flying everywhere and just walk across the street without even paying attention. Because if they're going to get hit by a car, it's just going to happen. It doesn't matter if they look or if they pay attention or if they look both ways, you know. Come on, we teach our kids that. We like, look both ways because if there's a car coming, you can prevent that by staying on the sidewalk for about five seconds till the car passes. But there, it's just, whoop, they just walk out. It's just crazy. Uh, they drive a lot that way, too. Well, if I'm going to get in a wreck, it's just going to happen, so I'll just drive however I want. It, bizarre. If you've never been anywhere else in the world before, uh, you think people drive bad here. You, you go to some third world countries, man, people drive absolutely bizarre, and a lot of it has to do with this idea of fatalism. They just drive however they want to. Uh, health is not the greatest over there. I actually got dysentery while I was over there. That was a blessing. If you've never had that before, it'll bless your life, amen? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I lost, when I graduated high school, I weighed about 145. I was a skinny dude when I graduated from high school, and then I got back from Africa, I probably weighed about 120. I mean, just, a big part of that was getting dysentery. It was awful. I'll tell you, a big part of that was, is the water's really unsanitary and unclean, right? And there's malaria, and there's other things that were over there. And, and I still remember, there's just kind of this attitude, well, if you're going to get it, you're going to get it. Why wash your hands? Why, why pay attention to this? Why do that? And that was just kind of the cultural trend that was over there. Not driven by laziness, not driven by lack of concern or care, but driven by this idea of, of fate. Well, if that is my destiny, nothing I do is going to affect the end result. It's just going to be. So I have to ask the question here this morning, is faith fatalistic? If faith is ultimately this, saying, God, you're in control, and you have this, then does that mean we can just sit back and say, well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen, 
Because by faith, we believe God's going to act how God's going to act. Now, in some ways, I can see how it can be helpful for people to have maybe a, a slight form of fatalist thinking, right? They say, well, this person got sick and they wound up dying. And if you're, if you're really thinking about, well, it's all in our lap, you might say, well, they should have gone to the hospital earlier. Well, if that doctor had done this, well, if they had only done this sooner, right? You can, you can drive yourself crazy thinking stuff like that, can't you? But let's be honest, sometimes we have to sit back and we just have to say this, what was done was done, and we did the best we could, and ultimately they wound up going to be with the Lord, and that's just kind of in the Lord's hands. But how far do we go with that? No, no, I want to just kind of put on our thinking cap here this morning. How far do we let that go? I mean, do we, do we sit back and we say, well, uh, whoever's going to be saved is going to be saved. And so we don't need to do any witnessing. We don't need to talk to anyone about Jesus because they'll just get saved if they're going to get saved. That's the Calvinist way of thinking. The Calvinist says, well, if they're going to get saved, they're going to get saved. And it's all up to the Lord. It has nothing to do with us. Now, how far do you take that in any spectrum of this area of faith? Now, I'd like to take a little bit of a view of a person here this morning of an individual named Nehemiah who did not take a fatalist view of faith. But he obviously had some pretty strong faith. Actually, if you study people's lives in the Bible, Nehemiah is a great hero of the faith. A man who had amazing faith. Actually, even in this text, he's trying to rally people not only to build a wall, but also to fend off some very uh, evil enemies that are all around them that don't want to see Jerusalem rebuilt. And he has to motivate a whole populace of people to not only work and rebuild a wall, but also fend off this enemy. And he says this when he's encouraging them, the Lord will fight for us. What, what a statement of faith that Nehemiah understood all the way from Nehemiah chapter 1, and especially in chapter 2, you start to realize the grief on Nehemiah's heart when he views the city wall and sees them broken down and burnt with fire. He understood this is not something I want to see done. This is something that God wants done and he will use me to accomplish it. This was not an act of a diligent leader, but an act of faith who believed in a diligent God. And so that's who Nehemiah is. And so we're going to see some interesting facts here because although Nehemiah is not a fatalist, you study through this, he, he actually, man, he's planning, he's prepping. You need swords, you need habergens, we need to have a plan, listen for the trumpet. He makes a lot of plans, but at the same time he recognizes ultimately the victory belongs to the Lord. So what does that mean for us in this area of faith? Did Nehemiah lack faith because he made preparation? Should he have sat back and just let what was going to be, be? Does it mean that he doubted in God? Now, in Nehemiah chapter 4, we didn't read it, but the first six chapters, there's a guy by the name of Senballat. Uh, if you're familiar with the book of uh, Nehemiah, some of these characters probably stand out to you. So there's a guy named Senballat, and then there's a guy named Tobiah, and these are two big uh, people, leaders of nations right outside of Israel that are just causing all kinds of grief for Nehemiah. So, again, just take this from the ground level. If you're unfamiliar with what the book of Nehemiah is, God judged the children of Israel and allowed the whole city of Jerusalem to just be ransacked down to the ground. Amen. 
And they were taken into captivity for 70 years, first with the Babylonians and then with the Persians. God allows a group of them to go back okay, uh, under Zerubbabel, the leader, and they start to reestablish a community. The first thing that God tells them to do is build the temple. You can read about that in the book of Haggai. Haggai talks about where they started building the temple, they laid the foundation, and then they had some opposition, so they gave up. Now, there's some preaching right there. That sometimes you start to do what God called you to do, and then it gets hard, so you give up. You say, well, I'm going to get up early tomorrow morning and read my Bible. And then your alarm clock goes off, and your flesh goes, never mind. Right? Uh, you go, you know what, I'm going to witness to that coworker. You had, come on, how many times have you sat in the church pew and said, I'm going to do this, and then the rubber meets the road, and you go, oh. Yeah. Then you get nervous, you get scared, and you hold back. Okay, the children of Israel did that. They laid the foundation, they were going to build the temple, and then, because of opposition, they quit. Twenty years passed, and then God sent a prophet by the name of Haggai who says this, here's what you need to do. You need to get up, go to the mountain, cut wood, and build the temple. And that was his message. And you know what they did? They went and built the temple. And so now there is still the city at large who has got a very low population. The walls are still broken down. They've got the temple built. And that's where Nehemiah comes in. Word comes to Nehemiah that the city of Jerusalem still is in shambles and it's still not what it ought to be. Nehemiah is in a unique position to King Cyrus as a cupbearer. And so he puts in the king's ear, do you mind if I go do this? The king not only says yes, but he gives him letters to where he can get supplies and men and energy to be able to accomplish that. And so when they show up, Nehemiah tours the city at night. You can read about it in Nehemiah chapter 2. He goes around the whole city and inspects all the different gates and walls, and then he writes out a plan. In Nehemiah chapter 3, he goes to each family and says, the Pollock family is going to work on this gate. And here we have the Hastings family, and they're going to work on this portion of the wall. Right? And we have the Brinsons, and they're going to be over here with this section of the wall. And so they divide it all up in chapter 3, which is a great reminder of this. Everyone has a job, Amen. and everyone has a task that needs to be accomplished. And, and the work won't be done if everyone doesn't do their job. What a testimony of how New Testament church works. Amen. Not everybody works in the same area. Not everybody does the same job. But if we all do what God's called us to do, the work gets done in record time. And so as they begin to do the work of God, the people are fired up. There, there are stonemasons that are starting to work and people that are breaking their back and they're pouring themselves into the work that God has called them to. And then don't you know, here comes these people who don't like the fact that Israel is going to prosper again. They don't want to see Jerusalem rebuilt. And so a guy by the name of Sanballat and Tobiah, they're over two different areas, and then another group of people called the Arabians, they all kind of conspire together and they say, we want to do everything possible to prevent that wall from being rebuilt. So in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, the first thing they do is they try mockery, verbal tactics. Now, they understand Nehemiah has the blessing of King Cyrus. So they, all, they understand this. Um, we don't want to push this issue too hard because if we go open warfare, uh, we might be calling in the Persian army. So they start first by kind of this soft tactic of going in, and they're going to say, oh, if a fox runs up that wall, it'll fall over. Y'all don't know what y'all are doing. Y'all don't know how to build a wall. Y'all don't know how to do this. Y'all are just trying to do something that will never get done. Now, listen, I'm telling you, when you start to do a work for the Lord, it's amazing how many people 
come out who should be cheering you on, who start to discourage you from doing the work of the Lord. Sometimes it comes right from the church. Isn't that a blessing? You step out and you go, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win someone to the Lord, or I'm going to get on fire for the Lord. And then you have people in the church who go, well, should you really be doing that? Right? Or people in your family, we're getting a little too excited about this Jesus stuff here, aren't we? Okay, what I'm saying is it, that, that happens, and that's exactly what happened here where there was this opposition that began to happen. So what happens here towards the end of Nehemiah in chapter number 4 is verbal catcalling doesn't work. So now these men assemble armies. They station them outside of the city at a safe distance away, and they start to have them out there as an intimidation tactic. So that the people would have this psychological thought, are they going to attack or are they not going to attack? Are we going to die? We don't really have a wall built yet. We're trying to work on it. And their whole motivation was this. We're going to discourage the people from rebuilding that wall. So they start uh, putting all these armies around them. And so Nehemiah, being the man that he is, a wonderful leader, man full of faith, he says, here's what we're going to do. So you start to read about several groups. Uh, you almost miss this just in reading. But I want to point out a few of these groups that he begins to talk about. Now, uh, obviously there were some weapons that were involved in this in verses 16 through 18. Uh, half of Nehemiah's personal servants. So half of his servants he applied in the work of the wall. And the other half, they were like mercenary men who were stationary and they were observing the wall and they had all kinds of weapons with them, spears and shields, bows, habergens, coats of mail that they put up. They had all of those things, and they were just like warriors who were stationary. So Nehemiah said, we still have to get the work done, so half of y'all are going to work on the wall. And the other half are going to have a weapon. Now these are his personal servants, not all the people, but personal servants. He also talks about in verse number 16 that there were rulers, that's the word that's given, and these were people who were designated to watch out for enemies. So these seem to be maybe uh, older men who maybe couldn't be employed in the work of the wall, but they were wise and had some leadership function within the community. And so they had a job of being positioned at different places on the wall as like watchmen. And they were mindful if there was an attack from this way or that way or that way, that they were the ones who were watching out for those type of Attacks. So we're starting to see some organization that happens here. The majority of the people were one-handed workers. So they were usually people who were carrying stone. Either they were clearing away rubble and then toting it away, um, or they were ones who were carrying stone to the stone workers so that they could work. So a good portion of the people were not skilled labor. They were just muscle. And here they're described as like one-handed workers. So he says in, in these type of workers, they had uh, working with one hand, and then in the other hand, they had a weapon. So these individuals, they had uh, uh, working with one hand, and then they were uh, also, they were uh, carrying a weapon in the other. Some people even think that the weapon that they were carrying might have been the very rocks they were moving. Because the word weapon that's used here literally means a dart or missile. So some people think, well, big old rock's a pretty good weapon. You know, a whole bunch of people start chucking rocks at them. I, I don't know, just kind of a little bit of a speculation there. There are other people who were skill workers who needed both of their hands to be able to work with the stone. So the Bible says that they were given swords. They would sheathe the swords 
and then they would work with both their hands, but they would have a sword ready. So he's just talking about the different ways that they were employing weapons that were given to each of these different men. Nehemiah uh, said, well, everyone's got weapons, but we've got like a group of people over here, and then way over there we got a group of people, way over there, people are working all over the place. So if someone attacks over here with a big army, and everyone else is working over here, they won't even know we're being attacked. So he creates an alarm system. So he says, come here, you trumpeter. Everywhere I go, you go. You're attached at the hip with me. I want you to behave like a three-year-old. If I stop, you know, they run into you. You know what I'm talking about? They're just following you everywhere. He's like, that's what you are, trumpeter. You're right there on my hip. And that way, if there's ever an issue, the word's going to come to me, and I can hit the trumpeter, and we start blowing the sound. So here's how the alarm system works. Wherever the trumpet's blowing, that's where everyone runs. The alarm starts going off, there's the trumpet. Everyone drops what they're working on, and they rush that area. Everyone's got a, a weapon ready to go. The guy's working with both his hands. He's got the sword. There's some mercenary men. There are those who are working with the wall with one hand. they got a weapon in the other. And they run and they, they all navigate to that one area so that they can defend against the attack. So something interesting happens in the midst of all of this, though. In verse number 20, look at, look at it again there. At the end of verse number 20, he says this, Our God shall fight for us. Now, there's some wonderful application that can be made here in the Christian life um, in regard to this trumpet that's sounding and then God fighting for them. If there is a believer, James 5.16 talks about this. If somebody's struggling, if a man's overtaken with a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Isn't that what the Bible says? Now, you talk about Nehemiah and the trumpet blowing and God fighting for them. You think about even in the life of a New Testament church, right here, Bible Baptist Church, that there's somebody who's under attack. Sometimes we need to blow the trumpet. And we say, ultimately, the victory belongs to God, but there needs to be a whole church that surrounds a person and comes to their aid. Too often, though, we say, well, I'm a little busy in what I'm working on here. I don't have time to help with that, right? That's not the work that we've been called to as a church, though. We need to rush to the aid of one another. You which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, loving them, helping them. Just some side application here on this. It's just to say this. When there's a problem, resort to the problem. Go to the problem. Help that individual out and help them get through what they're going through. That's exactly what they were doing with Nehemiah here. So the work remains the focus. In, in verse number 21 with that he says, so we labored in the work. The, the focus is still on the wall, but in the back of their mind they're thinking there could be an attack at any moment that's going to happen. Nehemiah made sure to keep the main thing the main thing. He never was sidetracked, but he kept moving full steam ahead with the work of the wall. Now here's the danger of this. What was Sanballat and Tobiah's mission? They were wanting to set up these armies so that they would quit working. And you know what Nehemiah said? No. We're going to keep doing the work of God. Regardless of what comes up and regardless of what these armies are doing, we're going to be mindful that it's there, but we're going to keep doing the work of God. Uh, again, regardless of how dark the world gets and regardless of how much people go crazy with sin 
And regardless of what the world does, we need to be busy about the work of God. And too often we can stop and get distracted of what's going to happen here and what's going to happen there. Ought we be mindful of it? Absolutely. It's there. There's an enemy named Satan in the world that is against the gospel. But let's be busy about the work. That's exactly what Nehemiah instructed them to do. And of course, every single person got involved. Verse number 22 and verse number 23, Nehemiah even sets up safety precautions. Even people that lived outside the wall, he said, now you're going to sleep on sleeping bags inside the wall. Because if somebody attacks, we need to be ready to go 24 hours a day. Obviously, there's some major things that Nehemiah is doing. Now, <clears throat> this is an interesting thing with Nehemiah here. One might wonder, at reading this, why would Nehemiah do all of this work if, according to verse number 20, Nehemiah believes God will fight for us? Just, just think about it for a second. Why is Nehemiah getting people who are going to blow trumpets and carry weapons and do all this stuff if he believes God's going to fight for us? If that genuinely is his belief, I mean, could God, if God wanted to, could he not go and just squish Samballot and Tobiah? I mean, if they begin to attack, God just like rain down hail and fire from heaven and kill them all. Absolutely. Could God send confusion in the camp? I'm just thinking about other biblical examples. Confusion in the camp where they just start killing each other. Right? God's done all those things before. If God wanted to do that, God could do that. Absolutely he could. So why is Nehemiah doing all the preparation here? Why is he doing all this work? Well, here's what Nehemiah ultimately came down to. And I think this is really a, a key thing throughout Scripture, which is this. God can, and I believe God will, but that doesn't mean I don't need to do my part. You ever heard the story of the guy uh, with all the floods that was coming in? He's in his house, and the floodwater's starting to rise, and a big vehicle comes through and says, Hey, man. It's going to flood. You're going to die. You need to get in the truck. Yeah. God's going to save me. The truck takes off. Water continues to rise. He's in his house up on the roof, right? There's just water everywhere. A motorboat comes by and says, hey, man, you got to go. You're going to die. It's going to flood. God's going to save me. The boat takes off and leaves him there. And then finally a helicopter. There's just a little bit of the roof that's left. Helicopter shows up and he says, God's going to save me. The guy winds up dying when he gets to heaven. He says, why didn't you save me? And he said, come on, man, I sent you a truck, a boat, and a helicopter. Amen. Now, it's a funny story, but the reality is a lot of us sit back and we just say, well, God's going to do this. God's going to take it. And I absolutely believe that. God will fight for us. I believe that. We're, God loves us. We're his children. Amen. But I also understand this. Sometimes God gets blamed for our inactivity. God gets blamed for our poor decisions. And we sit back and we say, well, I haven't had a job in five years and I keep spending my money the wrong way, but I don't know why God hadn't provided yet. No, no, I'm just being transparent. I'm saying, well, maybe it is that God wants you to like use the skills and the opportunities that he's given you to get this job and work. Maybe that's what God wants you to do. There's a great danger that we can develop this mentality of fatalism where we sit back and we say, well, what will be, will be. So, so what does this mean for, for the believer? Let me give you a few illustrations and things here to make some application on this. 
this thought was actually quite revolutionary for me. It, it shouldn't have been, but it, it was very helpful when I started to study this and look at this. <clears throat> On one side, you have the great ditch that says, what will be, will be. And then the other side that says, well, I have to do everything. It's all up to me. It's all up to God. It's all up to me. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is be like Nehemiah. By faith do, but ultimately trust God for the results. Every, come on, every story that we've studied about faith ultimately boils down to this. God did what he said, but it was predicated upon somebody doing what God told them to do. There's always action that's connected with faith. God says, do this, and then the person does it, and then God comes through every single time. I think Nehemiah understood this reality with it. Come on, prayer is one of those things. If, if it's just going to be, if what's going to be is what's going to be, then why do, why do we have prayer? No, no, we ought to pray like everything depends on us, but believe by faith that it ultimately depends on God. It will revolutionize your prayer life when you go before the Lord and you start to realize, hey, I understand everything is in the Lord's hand. And if God wants to heal and if God wants to save and if God wants to, to, to cause this thing to happen or to not cause this thing to happen, it's ultimately his will. It's ultimately what he wants to accomplish. And yet he's called on me to go before him with importunity. And he's called to come before him in prayer with great earnestness and to ask him for these things. Seek and you'll find. Ask and you'll receive. Seek, right? He says to do these things. Knock, the door will be opened. God has called us to engage in this thing called prayer. Pray like everything depends on the prayer you're offering up. But then believe by faith that God is ultimately the one who's going to bring it about. Well, what else? What about like soul winning? Can I save anybody? Nope. Can you? Nope. Do I want people to be saved? Absolutely. Amen. Sometimes you get kind of frustrated. Uh, Brother Jeff, I don't know if you ever get this way when you talk to people about the Lord, witnessing to them, you know, and you just want to be like, receive the Bible. <laughs> I can do this because it's my kid, right? Yeah. You just want to show up and just be like, come on, don't, don't you want to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know? And it gets frustrating sometimes. You're just like, this is so wonderful. It's changed my life so much. And People that reject the gospel, you know, you just, <clears throat> but ultimately, listen, we're not going to go back to the time of, you know, inquisitions and all the, uh, the stuff, the crusades and things. You know what they were doing then? Believe in Jesus or we're going to kill you. Well, that sounds good on paper, but that's not how God has told us to do it, right? <laughs> okay, it doesn't sound good on paper either, <laughs> but God hasn't called us to do that. What has God called us to do? Well, present the gospel like it's totally up to you, but ultimately salvation is of the Lord. Amen. Because I can't save anybody. I can't even save myself, let alone save somebody else. All I have the opportunity to do is take this glorious message called the gospel and share it with somebody else. But you know what? I want to tell everybody in Bridgeport, like the, the salvation of every soul in this city is dependent on my witness because ultimately you know what it is? It is. Because God has given me that great task. But ultimately, I can't save anybody. It's all by faith in Him that salvation happens. 
What about a, a New Testament church? Oh, man, mm, let's hit the rubber meet the road here. Here in a few weeks, we're talking about the whole building thing. The more I look at that, the more I go, nope. <laughs> that ain't ever going to happen. It's never going to, that, that's never. The more I, I set my mind on it and think about it, the more I start realizing it's this exact same thing that we're talking about. It is the Lord's church, and God will accomplish what He wants to accomplish. If He wants to do it, He'll do it, right? But there is also an aspect of us actually doing the work and, and, and beginning the process and, and giving and praying and, 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 and investing. And then we say this, I don't know how, but if we continue to do what God's called us to do, God can do what only He can do. It, it applies in every aspect of our life, this aspect of God has not called you to be a fatalist. God hasn't called you to just sit back and say, well, I have no control I have no thought, I have no ability in this process. No, no. You do what God has called you to do and leave the results to Him. Amen. Go out soul winning. Pray. Be faithful in the house of God. Live in a healthy lifestyle. But then ultimately, all the end result is up to the Lord. It belongs to Him. So Nehemiah was very right in saying this. We're going to do some prep work. Get weapons. Do this. Trumpet, everybody get ready, but God will fight for us because that is the absolute truth. Here it is, child of God, here this morning. God wants you to live by faith, but living by faith does not mean that you get to just sit back and say, well, what will be, will be. Faith always involves action. God said it, I will do it, and I will leave the results up to him. Let's all stand as we come to a time of invitation here this morning.